I'm always a little bit hesitant to jump up here because uh, some of these songs have a second and a third and a fourth ending. <laughs> it is good to see all of you this morning. Um, uh, we're glad that you're here today. It's a special day for a whole bunch of different reasons. And uh, the first of those is what's on the screen, the opportunity to share out of the bounty and the abundance of what, what God has given us with those who are in a situation of desperate, desperate need. Uh, in your bulletin, you will find the same graphic, and you can see the list of items. It's also on our website. Uh, as Randy mentioned, we're going to have a special contribution. Um, this will not be the first, but I'm sure there will be others. Um, I want to read you an email from um, the Gould's Church of Christ. Uh, that's where we've already sh- taken one van load of supplies, and that's where we'll take the supplies from today. Um, the brother writes and says, Brethren, good morning. I am happy to report that thanks to your participation and encouragement, including all the churches of Christ in South Florida, we shipped six pallets of supplies this week to Freeport. Uh, currently, we have a unique opportunity in our shipping and receiving of goods. There is a shipper allowing us to ship for $100 per pallet. The church there is able to receive and distribute the items I would like for you and your leadership to consider allowing members of your congregation to participate by sponsoring as many pallets as you would like for $150. We're going to continue to support in whatever ways we can. Um, the brother from the, uh, the preacher from the Broadview Church in, in North Lauderdale is, uh, from the Bahamas and he is there and you can find him on, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Dirk, Derek Turnquest. And, uh, and he's making regular reports and, uh, beginning to assess the situation. We're talking about in the future, seeing if we can get together a group of individuals once the situation settles and, uh, go in and begin to, to help with some of those efforts. So, uh, uh, we want to do as much as we possibly and humanly can. And then with God's help, we'll do even more. So, so please, uh, and if you're not prepared to, to contribute today, um, uh, you can do so during the week. You can send your checks in. You can make online donations uh, in any way possible. Also, um, this afternoon or today after our assembly, uh, we're having our uh, best practices workshop, worshiping with our children. So if you're interested in that, lunch is provided. It will be in the library immediately following the assembly, and we'll be thinking about what it looks like to worship with our children in a more active and interactive kind of way. There's a couple different announcements that we'll want to just, uh, I, I want to highlight here. Um, in the middle of your right-hand column there, you'll see a Spanish marriage retreat. Um, the Spanish This will be a retreat that will be conducted in Spanish, but if you understand Spanish and would like to participate, uh, uh, you may do so. Um, The coordinators for that are sitting up here at the front. Go ahead and stand up and and do your princess wave or your king king wave, I think is what we discerned on some of them. But they're going to have a table in the foyer, and you can uh, see them afterwards. Uh, Jeffer and Jubeli Lopez and Christian and Ariana uh, uh, Gonzalez. And so uh, we're grateful for their leadership and uh, looking forward to that. The dates are November 15th through 16th. And so uh, thank you. Um, uh, you can see them after. Also, uh, let me point out the uh, the walkathon for the youth group to support Christian homes for children. If you see a young person coming at you with one of these sheets, don't run. Lean into the child. Walk towards them with your wallet out and, uh, and, and be willing to, to sign up, uh, um, and, um, uh, and, and participate in that.
one last announcement, and this is for your benefit. Uh, today is the last day to get a picture taken for the directory. If you have not had your picture taken, you can do so today in the church office in the elders' library immediately after assembly. Um, the way that the directory is designed, if we don't have a picture from you, there's going to be this blank uh, 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 shape, uh, <laughs> kind of like on Facebook when you don't put a profile picture. And uh, so we really do want to encourage everyone, please, to get your picture taken. And if you're unable to do so, uh, you can send us a picture and uh, um, uh, you can send it to the email address in the office. And then it's in the bulletin and uh, sunsetmiami.org. And then we'll uh, we'll put that in. So uh, so please, we would like for everyone's picture to be in the directory. And um, if you give me permission, I will pull one off of Facebook for you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't always have the best taste is what I've been told. And so uh, you might want to do it yourself. Last week, when we saw Jesus, he was praying alone in an olive gourd. Internally, there was turmoil to the point where he felt like he might die. He was struggling to accept the task that God had called him for, that task that would mean the only hope we would have of salvation. Inside his heart, his mind, his inner spirit was in turmoil. But all around outside, there was quiet, calmness, a serenity, so much so that the disciples fell asleep repeatedly. In the text that we're going to look at today, the situation is quite the opposite. Now Jesus has inner peace. Now he is resolved and he knows what he's going to do. And there's no questions. There's no turmoil it's just a question of stealing himself for what's coming. But the scene around him is going to now be filled with violence because some individuals will show up and begin this process of what would eventually lead to our salvation and redemption. As we read through the text in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 65, I'll be making some comments as we read through, but notice that in this text, Mark chooses to give us just three names. No doubt he knows the names of the individuals, but he chooses just to name three. Jesus, Judas, the betrayer, and Peter, the denier. After this text, Judas doesn't show up in the Gospel of Mark again. His name will rarely appear on in people's mouths or on their lips, except to say he was the one who betrayed Jesus. But as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that Judas appears a couple different times because it was a common name. It's the same Greek word that means Judah, like the tribe of Judah. It's also in Greek the same word that's translated in our English Bibles, Jude, like the letter Jude. We're able to make a difference between Judas, Judah, and Jude. In Spanish, it's one word, 
Judas. <laughs> Makes it a little more complicated. But Judas itself as a name is also used. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. This is from the New English Translation. Right away, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him came a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent by the chief priests, experts in the law, and the elders. These are the three groups that made up what's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. They had authority, not only in legal matters, but also they had their own little army, and these were some of the individuals representing that army. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Remember that this was night, and if you've been outside in the country where there are no artificial lights, it's hard to see. This is an orchard where trees would be covering whatever moonlight there might have been. And so the sign was, whoever I go and kiss or greet or give a hug to is the one. When Judas arrived, he went to Jesus immediately and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, it gets a little tricky, but in Greek, this word here is like he outwardly showed a lot of affection. Like he kissed him over and over and over. He's showing and going beyond what would be expected in a hug or a kiss on the cheek. And then they determined that that was Jesus. They took a hold of him and arrested him, constrained him. One of the bystanders drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Again, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, uh, uh, Luke, and John, uh, some of these individuals have names. Mark chooses to focus on three named individuals. Jesus said to them, have you come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Some of your versions will say something like like a revolutionary. The word is thief. You know, in the parable of the uh, of the Good Samaritan, where there was a man walking and he was taken and beat up and left on the side of the road by thieves. Same word. Jesus will later be crucified between two thieves. Same word. So he's asking him, are you coming to arrest me as if I were some thief, a robber, a criminal? Now, it's true that in the ancient world, many revolutionaries funded their revolutionary activity through thievery and violence. And so that's kind of how that connection is made. But Jesus points out, day and day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, yet you didn't arrest me there. And then, demonstrating that resolve that he's already determined in his own heart, this has happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then, verse 50, all the disciples left him and fled. 
Jesus had already said they would. They had denied that they would. Peter has done so vehemently. And then to give us a clue to what kind of atmosphere this every man for himself, run for your life kind of a thing, Mark includes this story of a young man who was following with the group wearing a linen cloth, indicates he might have been wealthy. They tried to arrest him, but he ran off naked, leaving his cloth behind. Everybody, run for your lives. Then they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and experts in the law came together. Remember, we're talking about the middle of the night. Peter had followed from a distance up to the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting there with the guards warming himself by the fire. Mark gives us this little tidbit and then focuses on the trial that Jesus will experience in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and we'll come to Peter uh, next week. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They already knew what they wanted before the trial. Their goal, their verdict was clear, and all they needed to do was find people that would give witness or testimony that would witness to something that he said that would lead to his death. And so many gave false testimony about Jesus, but their testimony didn't agree. One of the principles of Jewish law from way back in, in the early books of the Old Testament was that by the word of two or three witnesses, someone could be convicted, but they had to agree. And these individuals, because they were probably put up to it, didn't. Some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, which he didn't, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days build another not made with hands. They were referring to that time when Jesus said, destroy this temple. He was talking about his body and in three days it will be raised. Yet even on this point, their testimony did not agree. So the high priest saw that he wasn't getting anywhere with this particular uh, uh, train of thought in questioning, so he decides to ask Jesus directly. Have you no answer? What is this they are testifying against you? But Jesus was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? They would say the blessed one to avoid saying God, the son of God. They're asking, he's asking Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And with all the times that Jesus has told people not to say anything or not to tell anyone who he was, now Jesus says, I am. And when we hear Jesus say, I am, that brings to mind the Old Testament verses where God is the great I am. It brings to mind the times when Jesus said, I am the door, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the light, I am the way, the truth and the light. And Jesus says, I am. And then to double down on what he said, he takes a couple quotations from Psalm and the book of Daniel to appropriate for himself not only the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, but now also the title, 
the Son of Man, which was recognized to be a messianic title. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming down with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? We have heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? They all in the Sanhedrin condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and to strike them, strike him with their fists, saying, prophesy. There was a tradition that the Messiah would be able to identify people and things by smell and not only by sight. And so they're playing this horrific game of blindfolding him and hitting him, saying, okay, tell us, if you're so smart, who's hitting you? And this part of the story ends with the guards taking Jesus and beating him. Well, this was the first of numerous hearings and trials that Jesus is going to have. Uh, these, and we'll come back to a little bit in the coming weeks, but there'll be um, another mention of his appearance before the Sanhedrin. And then Jesus will get taken to the Roman rulers and Pilate. And so this is the beginning of a process but Jesus isn't the only one on trial here. As we'll see next week, while Jesus is being asked to defend himself before the Jewish leaders, Peter is going to be facing his own trial and will be defending or not himself. It strikes us that this is a different Jesus than we saw in the garden we see this quiet determination, this courageousness, this firmness of action. Jesus is confident in the Father's will and what he wants. I am that man, that son of God, that Messiah, that son of man. I, I, I want to make two basic points here for, for us to think about. Um, and what we see in these verses, the, the, one's negative and the other's positive. Um, I, I think the thing about Judas shows us and should bring to light and reality that betrayal is always a danger for all of us. If we were to go around the room with a microphone saying, would you ever betray Jesus? I would venture to say that we would get close to, if not 100% agreement that no, I would never do that. But the disciples have said the same thing and they have all fled. Judas will be remembered for all of human history as one of the worst traitors of all time. And yet we would be foolish to think that that would never happen to us. Despite all the advantages he had and all of the face time he enjoyed with Jesus, he still lost it all. And if we think that we would never do anything like that, 
We've probably not read those verses carefully because they pointed us as well. You know, one of the things that strikes me about Judas is something that I think we all kind of fall into the trap of thinking. Association with godliness is no guarantee that we will become godly. See, I know a lot of people that have struggled in coming to church because it's a big step and, and, and making that decision. And yet we fall into the trap of thinking, if I can just make it to church, then everything will be okay. Well, maybe. Just being around healthy, good people doesn't necessarily mean that's going to rub off on me. Our our skin is an amazing organ. And it seems so flexible and porous. You know, when you sweat and it's really hot, kind of like on days like today. And if your AC is not working, I'm sorry for you guys. Um, you sweat out of, it seems like all over your skin, right? Everything sweats, even it looks like your knuckles will sweat. The palms of your hand will sweat. And so it, it lends us to think that our skin is, is very porous, but actually it's not. It's quite resilient. If you slather some sort of poison on your hand, it's very rare that it's going to make it all the way into your bloodstream. It might burn your skin, but it's like brick and mortar. It's like the, the stones on this wall here. They're pieced together very, very tightly. And, and so as the pharmacists and doctors and scientists are trying to find ways to, uh, uh, to, to help different drugs get into our system via a patch, they've run into the hurdle that you can put a patch on your skin and that doesn't mean it's going to get to your heart. It doesn't going to get into your blood because the skin is tough. And so what they have to do is they have to put some sort of ingredient in the patch that will break down the resistance of the skin so that the, the skin so that then the medicine can get in. Another way is and 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 I've never worn one of those patches, so uh, um, I, I, I hope I don't deter you. But they're developing these patches that are very small that have like micro needles that will actually when you put the patch on, it'll help penetrate the skin so that you can get the drugs in. Now, you won't feel it. At least that's what they say. Just like when they say this won't hurt. But but what my point is that the, the skin is resilient just because there's a medicine and I put Tylenol and I pour a bottle of Tylenol onto my hand. It's not going to help my fever. Just being close to godliness, just being close to even the most godly person like Jesus isn't going to guarantee that that godliness will get into your heart. There has to be another mechanism to somehow break down the barrier because like our skin, our souls and our beings are just kind of resistant. What they found is they have to put extremely high doses of medication in these patches and hope that just a little bit of it makes it through. Most of the drugs on your patches will stay in the patch. But if you leave it on long enough, you'll get enough of the dosage that will do your effect, whether it be a a nicotine patch or any other kind of medication that they do transdermally. Uh, uh, They load up the medication much more than you would need because they know most of it will never get to where it needs to be. 
In the same way, Satan is looking, is constantly on the prowl, is constantly touching, is constantly prodding, is constantly looking for a way to break through that barrier. Judas wasn't the only one that Satan was after. Every single one of those men and every single one of the women who were followers of Jesus would have been poked and prodded and tempted by Satan. Anytime you have a church situation where uh, uh, something has gone horribly, horrifically wrong and a person falls from grace or falls into a sin, you can know that they're not the only ones who have been tempted in that church. There might have been one who chose to accept the temptation, but all are tempted. Satan and his demons were working on all of the disciples. And then, as we see, not from this particular account, but what we know from reading the other gospel accounts in the book of Acts, Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, was so overcome by his own sorrow and guilt that he couldn't live with himself And I think that just points to the fact that there is no way for us to know the level of remorse that we might feel once we begin down a path. We might think that this particular temptation looks attractive and it might even be fun for a little while. But there's no way we can imagine the level of heartbreak and remorse that might come from that. I can choose the sin that I want to commit. I cannot choose the consequences. So Judas is a warning to all of us. But then Jesus is also an example, a positive example, of what it looks like to love your enemy. Jesus himself instructed us to love our enemies and, and I don't know about you. I don't think I have two enemies in my, too many enemies in my life. I'm sure I have some. I don't see them on a regular basis. In fact, if I did, I would go out of my way to avoid them, right? I'm not going to call them up and have lunch with them on Tuesday. And, and yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He invites Judas into his band of followers. He washes Judas's feet as he washed the feet of all the disciples. He invites Judas to this table to take part in the Last Supper, which will then be the Lord's Supper. At that table, he gives Judas a portion of bread that had been dipped in the herbs. Rather than rejecting and removing Judas, Jesus draws him closer. And if there's anything that we learn from this story is that Jesus truly does love his enemies. And so that's good news for me because in my sin, I also was Jesus' enemy. 
And it also means that I should imitate Jesus as I think about individuals with whom I disagree. You know, if Jesus were living today, I don't know that he would have a Facebook account. I'm kind of thinking maybe not so much. But I can tell you that he would probably not go on rants. And he would probably not choose to decimate people via Facebook. Because when you think about it, the only people in the world are your friends and your enemies. That's about it. And what is our reaction supposed to be to both of those groups? Exactly the same. Love your friends, love your enemies. Jesus, uh, Judas's kiss showed us how low the human heart can go. And Jesus's response shows us just the opposite, how high God's heart can soar. You know, we don't know why Judas did what he did. There was obviously a financial component. Some suggest that he was trying to uh, push Jesus's hand and force him to be the revolutionary leader that many people wanted. But as I spent some time thinking about it this week, I think it just gets down to, at least for me and in, in my simple way of looking at things. Jesus, Judas wanted his will over what God wanted. He wanted the money for himself. He didn't really care about anybody else. He didn't care what God wanted to do with the money that they were collecting. He might have wanted Israel to be free from Roman oppression. And so he was going to push his agenda the way he knew how. Whatever his motives were, they were focused on himself and what he wanted. And I think about how hard it is for us to remove ourselves from that equation in our day-to-day life. As we think about decisions about finances and possessions, relationships, we tend to choose what we want and then ask God to bless our decisions. And many of those decisions are self-serving. When you think about how much to give to the people in the Bahamas, we would tend to think, well, I'm going to give you a little bit of what I have, but I'm not going to go crazy. And yet the reports indicate (laughs) there are so many brothers and sisters in Christ who have lost everything. They haven't lost everything. They have God and they have us. And we're going to do what we can to support and encourage them. You think about decisions that are made at church and and in worship, and it's what I want. I don't like these songs. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't. It's what I want. What does what? I'm going to get distracted here in just a minute. And I think that's the core, and that's why I think every single one of us could be guilty of betraying Jesus when I put my will and my agenda and my desires above what God truly wants. So there's two choices today. There's two 
examples to follow, one to avoid and one to adopt, one to run from and one to embrace. Judas and Jesus, thinking of himself only or thinking about the kingdom and thinking of us. As you make your decisions this week, my prayer for each one of us, myself included, all of us, is that we choose God's will. May God's will be done, not mine. If we can pray with you, if we can help you in your journey to find God, if you need to be baptized, we would love to help you with that. I invite you to stand and sing. Brother Jeff will come and receive your prayer requests. God bless you. Soon and very soon we are going.